You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. Well, hey, we are so excited to have a familiar face with us today. Um, Scott and Shannon Schwarzentrooper uh, are with us today, and Scott's going to be bringing the message. Scott, if you don't know him, he is the president of I-68 Ministries Missions down in, in Mexico. Um, our church family has taken num- numerous trips down there to um, just support him and partner together with them in their ministry. Um, so would you join me in helping welcome Scott? that on? Good morning. There we go. It's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 10, please. Romans chapter 10. It's always good to be here. My wife and I look forward to being with you. Wish we could be here more often. Um, In the last month, the results of two separate studies have come out. One was conducted by Arizona Christian University, and they conduct their study every year. And another one was a partnership between Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Ministries, and they do their study every two years. And what both studies are trying to do is essentially the same thing, and they're trying to take the temperature of Christianity in the United States. And so they survey adults, and then they survey professing Christians. And there was no surprise in in the adults surveyed that, that less and less Americans are identifying as Christians, as Christ followers. That, just look around, like you don't need a survey to, to prove that one true. Less and less people are saying, yeah, I follow Christ and I'm a Christian. The part that was very alarming about the studies, both of them indicated it. The people that identified as Christians, I, I am a Christ follower, they would ask them some questions, and the answers to their questions were all over the place. The answers to their questions indicated that they were not Christian. And that's very alarming and very scary because what is it that makes us a Christian? What makes us a Christian is what we believe. What makes a Christian distinct and different from everybody else in the world, from every other religion in the world, is a Christian believes what is true. Everybody else believes what is lies. You ask questions, okay, that's great, what do you believe? And none of the Christians knew the answers. No one really understood how to explain what it is that we believe that is so true and how it is different from lies. That's very, that's very alarming. And so we want to work on that today. It makes us, that, that's what we're holding on to is our belief in what is true. And so what is it? And a lot of times we'll be in a conversation and kind of goes like this. Well, 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 what do you believe? Jesus. Okay, good. That's amen to that. that that's it in a nutshell. Can you, can you explain it a little more to me? Well, Jesus died for my sins. And oftentimes the response is like, well, who cares? You might have sins, but I don't have any sins. And then we kind of get stuck in the conversation, right? Like, where do we go from here? How do we explain what it is that we are to believe? How do we explain what it is that we're holding on to? And so Paul does a marvelous job in the, in the letter to the church in Rome, in the book of Romans, explaining exactly what it is that Christians believe. Because what we believe is what makes us Christians. What we believe, who we believe, is where our salvation is found. And so I love, we're going to just look at two verses in chapter 10, 14 and 15. And it's the most concise, condensed, um, clear explanation of what it is that we believe. So we're going to read it and work through it. So let's read 
Romans chapter 10. We're only going to read verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So let's give, let me give you some context so we know what, what Paul is doing here. Romans 1 through 8, if I could oversimplify it and condense it in as few words as possible, Paul's argument is salvation comes through faith in Christ and everybody needs salvation. There's more going on there, but that kind of gets our minds around Romans 1 through 8. And then he takes a turn and in chapters 9 through 11, he addresses a different issue. Well, what about Israel, someone might ask. Israel is God's chosen people, God's special people. What, if everybody needs to believe and call on Christ, what, what about Israel, Paul? And Paul is just masterful. He's like an attorney. Picture a, a closing argument in a courtroom where Paul will um, argue a thesis. He will argue something that is true, and then every verse is like evidence to prove that his thesis is true, that his, what he is saying is actually true. Picture a brick wall being built, assembled, and every verse is another brick that's building this foundation of truth. And we know that's true because if we look through the whole chapter of uh, 10 of Romans, there's 21 verses. 16 of those verses start with a conjunction, meaning he is making an argument. Everyone is proving what his argument is true. And so what is the argument that Paul is making? He is saying, okay, what about Israel? My beloved brothers, he calls them in chapter 9, these people that I identify with because I am Jewish, they are not saved. They have zeal for God, but they are not saved. And you think about what he's saying, and you put that in our culture today. Like we're pretty, we're very, very touchy, sensitive culture. Like we don't, we don't say that about people. People that show zeal for God, we just, you know, who are, who are you to tell me I'm not saved? Well, the Bible makes it very clear who is saved and who is not saved. And it's important for us to understand this. It's important for us to know for ourselves so we can have assurance and confidence in the joy of salvation. And it's important for our loved ones. We're hearing it more and more. It's like it, we just heard a tragic story of a, a teenager dying and a family member was trying to counsel all of her friends. And it's like, well, do you think she's in heaven? And she didn't have an answer. She didn't know the girl, but, well, you know, she went to church, so hopefully she heard the truth and hopefully she believed the truth. But what is that truth? And so what we believe matters. And so Paul is saying, my beloved Israel in chapter 9, he says, I would give up my salvation. I love these people so much. If I could give my salvation to them, I would. That's how much I care about them. But they are not saved because they are not believing what is true. And this all builds, and they're saying, he, Paul is so good at predicting what the argument is going to be, and he lays it out there, and then he answers it. And he lays another one out there, and he answers it. And so the argument is just building through the whole chapter 10. And finally, in 14 and 15, what we're going to work on today, the, the perceived potential argument is, well, they're, maybe they're not believing on Christ because they've never heard of Christ. Give them a break, Paul. And so he's making an argument here that, no, they have absolutely heard of Christ. And their guilt is on them because they have rejected Christ. It's not that they haven't heard. That's the whole point of 14 and 15. How can you call if you haven't 
disbelieved. How can you believe if you haven't heard? How can you hear if no preacher has preached? And how can a preacher preach if he's never been sent? And Paul's saying they have been sent. They have heard the message of Christ and they have rejected the message of Christ. We know that's true in verse 21. But as for Israel, God, he, God says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is Paul's argument. What about Israel? Well, Israel's not saved because they are rejecting and refusing to believe on Christ. And it's not God's fault. God did not come up short. God did not neglect to tell his special people, Israel, that they need to believe on Christ. He has done that and they have said, no, thank you. And so how do, how do we layer this onto our lives? How does this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, how does this, this filter into us? What message does this letter to the Roman church have for us today in Phoenix, Arizona? And I've alluded to it already, but we must understand what it is that we believe. Not for doctrine's sake, not for information's sake, not for technicality's sake, but so that we can enjoy what it is to be saved. We can know the difference, and we know how to speak into our loved one's lives. Oftentimes we'll have a loved one die, and we're, we're unsure. We're unsure. It's like, well, they, you know, Paul says these guys had zeal. We, we kind of lower the bar some, and a lot, and we'll be like, well, they were a good person. They went to church, and they didn't kill anybody, so hopefully they're in heaven. Hell's going to be full of good people that went to church that didn't kill anybody. That is, not, that, is not the st that is not the standard. That is not the bar. So what, what is the bar? And Paul makes this so clear. And these are like chain links that all tie together. And it begins with how can they call? So it begins with the end in mind. How can they call on him whom they have not believed? Verse 13, right before it says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So obviously if call is the touchdown, if call is the manifestation of me having faith, saving faith, saving knowledge of Christ, then call is pretty important, is it not? Call is the thing. This is how we know. My loved one dies, well, did they call upon the Lord? Am I saved? Well, am, have I called upon the Lord? Am I calling upon the Lord? Well, that's, that's a bit of a I was, like, I was walking through this with my wife yesterday, and she's like, that's a bit of a lofty idea. Like, what does it mean to call upon the Lord? And that might be the best question we can ever ask. We consume ourselves with a lot of details and a lot of information about a lot of things, but we are vague and nebulous and fuzzy on the thing that actually matters. What does it mean to call upon the Lord? And I want to spend some time on this today because I really believe it's at the root of many things that are, that are maybe going wrong within the church. So what does it mean to call upon the Lord? First, let me give a couple definitions. What does it mean to call? First, it means to invoke. To invoke, to cite as someone of authority, and to call upon them, to summon them, to plead with them on your behalf. So we're invoking. So kind of think, you know, when you're, you're at a restaurant and the service is bad, Hey, let me talk to the manager, please. I need to talk to the person in authority who can solve my problem. And so when we call, we are calling upon the one who has authority to solve our problems. A second definition that's helpful is it is to 
add a surname, to take on the surname of another for our own benefit. And the best way to think about this is think about being an orphan in an orphanage. And someone dropped you off and nobody knows your name and you don't know your name and so you're a John Doe. And the family comes in and they pick you. And they sit down with you and they put, put you on their lap and, hey, would you like a family? Yes. Hey, would you, would you like to be a part of our home? Yes. Would you like to take on our name? Yes. And so we get this idea of adoption. We get this idea, now that, that adopted child has a new identity. They have a place of belonging. They have a new name. When I'm in Christ, when I call on Christ, I'm no longer Scott, I am a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. That is my identity. And so those are the two definitions. But let's look at some biblical examples of how it is defined. The Bible paints a great picture of, in many, many places, the Psalms is full of calling upon the Lord. But I want to look, take the time and look at four different places where people in the Bible have called upon the Lord. And the first one will be Exodus chapter 2. If you remember in Genesis that there was a great famine and Pharaoh was the one with all the power and all the authority and Joseph, Jacob's son, was his right-hand man. And so basically Israel, God's people, which was just Jacob's family at the time, began moved to Egypt and things were going great under Pharaoh and Joseph's care. But then Joseph dies and then Pharaoh dies and a new king comes in who knows nothing about the arrangement that Joseph and King Pharaoh had. And the Israelites are, are multiplying, they're growing. And they're becoming a threat to Egypt. And so Egypt begins to really persecute them and put them in bondage and put them in slavery. And no matter what they do, there's nothing they can do to fix the problem. If they work harder, they're just expected to work harder. If they work less hard, they're beaten so that they will work harder. They actually become slaves in the land of Egypt. And so this is the scenario in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. The sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. They cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and he took notice of them. Do you hear that in verse 23? They sighed because of their bondage. They cried out, and they cried for help. You get this picture of a very desperate, needy people calling upon the name of God, who is an authority who can solve their problem for them. There's another great explanation of calling in 1 Kings Chapter 18, the scenario here is, I love Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God, and he's like the best trash talker that there ever has been. He would compete with any professional athlete today. The nation has rebelled against God, and so God has put a severe drought and famine on the land to get their attention. But the people continue to call out to this false god, Baal, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And Elijah is like, no more, we can't do this. We must turn to God. And so there's like a showdown. And it's Elijah the prophet and all the prophets of all these false gods. And they come to the mountain and Elijah has this plan. It's like, hey, let's both build altars. Let's both put sacrifices on the altars. But let's not light the altars. Let's not burn the sacrifice. 
Because the sacrifice really isn't a sacrifice until it's burnt, so it needs to be burnt. But let's not light them. Let's call on our gods and see what happens. 24 of chapter 18. This is Elijah speaking. Then you call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. Think about what's at stake here for Elijah. Like this is not just an arm wrestle match and the, the loser goes home ashamed. The loser dies. And Elijah is putting all of his eggs in the basket, so to speak, that the God he worships is God. And so you've got picture on the top of the mountain, an altar set up with an animal to be sacrificed. And I just, I love Elijah because he's like, you guys go first, right? And so they start calling on their, their false gods and nothing happens. And so then he gets into it and he's like, well, maybe you should call louder. Maybe, maybe he stepped away from the desk for a minute and he, he doesn't know you're calling him. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he, went, maybe he went away and he just can't hear you. Like he is just egging them on. He is antagonizing them. Right? And they start gashing themselves with knives and crying out with everything they got and, and nothing happens. And he's like, okay, after a day of that, I've had enough. Now it's my turn. Right? And he's like, hey, be before I call on my God, get some barrels of water and dump it over my sacrifice and my altar. Why? Because that would make it harder to burn. So he calls them to do that, and they do it. He's like, you know what? One more time. Let's get some more water, and let's do it again. Like, okay, we're getting the point, Elijah. He's like, now let's do it a third time. Let's get more water. Like, I really want to prove to you guys who God is. And so here you're in a severe drought. We've just spent all day calling on the false gods, and nothing happens. This altar and the sacrifice is covered in water. It's soaking wet. He calls on God, and God sends fire and destroys the sacrifice. All of the false prophets are killed. Elijah actually has to run from his life. But that story, that true story, gives us a picture of what it is to call upon the Lord. I just think about what's at stake for Elijah. Like this is not just, well, okay, if this goes bad, I guess, right? Like he, he is saying, God is God, and I'm staking my life on it. I am calling upon, I'm invoking, I'm appealing to God. It's a great picture of what it is to call upon the Lord. If we go to the New Testament, we'll find another story. Matthew chapter 8. This is a very familiar story. Jesus is going around Israel with his disciples. Verse 25 the disciples get in the boat and go out on the lake ahead of him. And what happens? The storm gets crazy. I think I'm mixing two stories. He gets into the boat. This is the story where they're in the boat together. This is where he's falling asleep. The storm is raging and they're worried about dying. So it's a life or death situation, right? And what do they do in verse 25? And they came to him and they woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. That is a clear picture of what it is to call upon the Lord. Life or death situation, they call out, they invoke the name of Jesus to save them. One last one, just to, in case this picture isn't becoming clear. Luke 23. Jesus is being 
has been crucified. He's hanging on the cross. He's got two criminals on either side of him. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's an interesting one because he's hurling abuse, but at the same time he is calling upon the name of the Lord to save him. Save yourself and save us. So we get this clear picture of what it is to call upon the name of the Lord. The Israelites were in bondage and slavery. They're in a desperate situation. Elijah has, has banked his life on God being God and he calls upon him and if, it's, if he doesn't come through, Elijah dies. The disciples are terrified by the storm and they call upon the Lord. The criminal is hanging on the tree about ready to die and he calls upon the Lord. And so we get this picture of desperate, needy, life or death dependence. And you call upon the Lord. Might get in a little trouble for saying this. Might open a can of worms. But in all honesty, as I've been preparing, my, my heart's been in a little bit of turmoil because honestly, I, I care more about your soul than I care about getting in trouble. The common word today, we don't use the language call upon the Lord. What language do we use? Hey, let's accept Jesus. And there might have been a day when that, when that language worked. But today, the first thing that comes to our minds when we say accept a friend request, is Jesus on social media sending you a friend request hoping that you'll, you'll accept him? It's an entirely different posture than it is to call upon the Lord. When I accept Jesus, there's a part of my self-confidence and dignity that remains. And I can walk with a little bit of, oh, like I'm, I'm selecting options. Where over here, if I call upon the name of the Lord, I'm in a desperate situation. I'm looking in one place and one place only. And so it's an entirely different heart posture. Now, you can accepted Jesus, but have the heart posture of a call. God is not petty. This is not, hey, you know, that one's mine. I saved him, but he used the wrong word, so he's not getting in. That, that's not how it works. That's ridiculous. What God does care about is the posture of the heart. And that's why he uses the language call. That's why it's important to understand, have you called upon the Lord? Do we know what it means to call upon the Lord? Do we understand what it says about us and what it says about God and when it says call upon the Lord? Or are we just over here and, you know, I'm, I'm picking my best option and I'll give Jesus a try. My marriage is a train wreck and, you know, someone said that Jesus will help my marriage, so I'll give it a try. I'll, I'll accept him if that's what I have to do to fix what I really want fixed. And it gets us in trouble. And so we've seen a biblical definition, we've seen biblical stories, and we've compared it to what it looks like today. I want to give you just a, a, a personal for my own life. I did the Christian life for many, many years in this posture of accepting Jesus. And I was busy for the Lord. I definitely had zeal for the Lord. I was doing a lot of activities for the Lord. I was very involved. But there came a day, by the grace of God, when he impressed upon me my need to call upon the Lord. And in that moment, everything changed. I know from personal experience, there is a world of difference from accepting Jesus from a posture of pride to calling upon the Lord in a posture of dependence. The thing I love about this is how simple it is. 
I have a two-year-old grandson that I get to see tomorrow and I have a hard time preaching without mentioning him. And he's at that stage right now where he wants to do it. Hey, Lake, you hungry? Yep. You want a granola bar? Yep. You grab the granola bar and you start to open it and he says, I do it, I do it, I do it. Right? Okay, here you go. So you patiently stand close by because you know he can't do it. So you let him try and he's busting up the granola bar a little bit. And you find like, hey, Lake, you need some help? Yeah, help, please. My two-year-old grandson knows how to call for help. You know who can't call for help is the one that says, I do it. And never stops saying, I do it. We must come to the end of ourselves and call upon the Lord. The scriptures are explicitly clear. It may seem dramatic and, and you may think, well, geez, I don't, I don't, our, our hearts resist this. I don't want to be seen as a needy, desperate loser. But here's, here's the deal. Jesus came for needy, desperate losers. If we've got it together, if we have what it takes, then we don't need Jesus. And if we don't call upon Jesus, we don't have salvation. So we must see ourselves rightly. We must see ourselves as desperate, needy losers in need of a Savior. We must call upon the Lord. Next, let's define, let's continue defining words. There, I think I had ambition to define several words here, and we're only going to get through a few. This is more of a four-part series than a one-part sermon. <clears throat> How will they call on Him? Him is is the key. It's critical. So when we answer, what is it that you believe? And we say, Jesus, that is the right answer. But we want to be able to help people and explain it to them. So who is the him and why is him the him? In order to understand, in order to call upon Christ, we must see our condition rightly. In order to see our condition rightly, we must understand what our problem is. Our, our pro problem, the problem in our lives. Many times we think that happiness is our problem or a lack of fulfillment is our problem or a relationship is our problem or money is our problem or politics are our problem or our country is the problem or Hollywood is our problem. None of those things are our problem. Righteousness is our problem. Paul is making this argument throughout the entire book of Romans. In chapter 10 alone, he uses the word righteousness seven times. He's saying righteousness is the issue at hand. Righteousness is the issue that you and I need to have solved. And so what is righteousness? Let's define righteousness. The simplest way to think about it is just to shorten the word, and it is right. It is what is right. It's not a right. It's not my right. It's not your right. It's not up for debate. It is what is right. It begins and it ends and is defined by God and God alone. God does not simply do what is right and righteous. His being, He is righteous. He defines it. It's who He is. He cannot not be right. He cannot not be righteous. So it is to be right, to do what is right. And this is who God is. And this is how He is, defines it by Himself. God has never made a mistake. He's never made an error. He's never said oops and tried to do things over again. 
We live in a day where we all have our own version of right. My truth. Your truth. Uh, that's a lie from the depths of hell, and it's destroying our lives. And it's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. And so God is right, and he is perfectly and wholly righteous. And this is good news. This is glorious news, because if he is not perfectly righteous, then he's not God. Or he would be a God that's not worthy or powerful enough to save. And so we need God to be perfectly righteous. And so then what about you and I? Where are you and I standing? What does the Bible say about us? In the beginning, God created Adam, and he created him perfectly righteous. And they had perfect communion and perfect relationship. They had a right relationship. They were together, and it was beautiful. And then what happened? But Adam. Pay attention to the buts in the Bible. You can learn a lot about the story when you pay attention to the buts. But Adam did what? He did not believe that God was righteous. He did not believe that God was good. He believed that Satan was telling him what was good. And in that moment of not believing in God's righteousness, he severed his righteousness. God told him that you will surely die if you disobey me and do not believe me. And that's exactly what happened. His righteousness came to an end. And so now there's a broken relationship between God and Adam. And if you are a human being here today, you are a descendant of Adam. And as descendants of Adam, we are born, we have inherited his unrighteousness. And so we are born unrighteous. And so you've got a perfect holy God who is righteous, and you've got us who is unrighteous. And this is a chasm too big for us to span. And it creates many problems. It breaks our relationship with God. We were created by God and for God, and we find our life in God. And yet if we cannot solve this righteousness problem, we, we cannot live as we were created to live. We cannot have life as we were meant to have life. The design for which we were created can never come to be until this righteousness issue comes to bear. The second problem is our unrighteousness doesn't just separate us from God, it identifies us as enemies of God. Because in my unrighteous condition, I do not want to acknowledge God. I do not want to acknowledge that He is God, and that He is righteous, and that He is holy, and that He is sovereign over the whole universe, and that I will give an account to Him. So it makes me an enemy of God. So my life will never fulfill its purpose. I'm an enemy of God and I will suffer the wrath of God for all eternity if I remain unrighteous. So Paul continues in chapter 10. I wish we had time to go through it all verse by verse. He says there are two approaches to fix this righteousness problem. There is man's attempt and there is God's provision. And what is man's attempt? Man's attempt to the people that Paul was talking about was I'm just going to get my act together. I am going to obey God's law, and I'm going to do it so well that I'm going to earn my righteousness. I'm going to become righteous in my own strength. And so I'm going to become righteous, and I'm going to do it. Well, there's, there's two problems with this. One we already mentioned is unrighteousness is a condition. So if I'm unrighteous, number one, it's impossible for me to do righteousness. 
and it's impossible for me to change that condition, so I'm flawed before I start. But number two, it requires perfect righteousness. You could, be, you could act and behave righteous your entire life and mess up for one second, and now you're deemed unrighteous. So there's all kinds of issues with that. And we know this is true, because let's say you, get, you, you obey the speed limit all the time. I don't know what that's like, but I heard people try it. You obey the speed limit, and you're in a hurry, and, and for a split second, you hit the gas, and you speed. What are you? You're a speeder. And the cop pulls you over and says, hey, you, were, you broke the speed limit. What are you, you going to argue? It's the only time I've ever done it. I've never done it before, and I'll never do it again. Is that going to convince him to not give you a ticket? Does that change your guilt? You are still guilty of speeding, and you still deserve a ticket. Would God's standard somehow be less than a police officer's standard? Like if we break God's law, one second of one day we are deemed unrighteous. And that's all of us. So we are born unrighteous. And even no matter how hard we tried, we could not be there. I love what C.S. Lewis says. We all think we're righteous until we attempt to live righteously. If we genuinely attempt to live according to God's law... It's going to take a matter of minutes for us to realize that we're in trouble. The only ones that believe they are attaining to God's righteousness are the ones that have lowered his standard and lowered his law. So we have our attempt is, is flawed. And this is what Paul is telling us in Romans, what he's saying about his brethren that he loves. They are attempting to be right with God by earning salvation by becoming righteous on their own. And so that's man's attempt, and it's failed. What is God's provision? Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 10 in Romans. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end. Christ has accomplished and fulfilled perfect righteousness. He was born by the Holy Spirit, so he did not inherit the unrighteousness of Adam. That's why it's important to understand why the Holy Spirit birthed Christ through Mary. And then when he was born, he perfectly obeyed God's law. Every second of every day. He never had a second where he wasn't pleasing to the Father. And so he's born righteous, and he lives perfectly righteous. The only one... In all eternity who has ever done that. And then what does he do? He takes his righteousness and allows himself to be nailed to the cross on our behalf so that all who believe in him, all who call on him, he will give his righteousness to us. He doesn't give us our own righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. And now God sees us as righteous. Christ is the end of the law. It doesn't mean he did away with the law. It doesn't mean he demolished God's standard. It means he fulfilled God's standard on our behalf because we could not. Because we are the Israelites enslaved. The story of David and Goliath. We are the Israeli army in our tents cowering because the enemy is too big for us to be defeated. He has done what we could not do. He has sent a Savior to be our righteousness. And so when we call upon the Lord, we are given... His righteousness. 
God's answer to every human problem, every issue you have, every problem I have, every circumstance we encounter, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end. We must look to Christ. At base camp, when you come down, if you've been down there, you'll notice that in all of our bathrooms, there is a cross hanging where the mirror should be. And we have many, many people come and think we can't afford mirrors, so they give us mirrors, and we give them away to families. Why are we doing that? It's a reminder. We need to take the focus off ourselves. We need to stop looking to ourselves. We need to look to Jesus Christ. Because He and He alone can solve our righteousness problem. Your pastors love you at this church. And your pastor's job is not to make sure you're happy. It's not to make sure you're fulfilled. It's not to make sure you experience the American dream. It's not to have the right answer on whether masks are right or not. Their responsibility before God, to God, is your righteousness problem. Have they communicated to you your righteousness problem and the solution and the remedy to that problem? That is what this church exists to do. And we could follow through the verse and see that the necessity, what it means to call upon the Lord and to believe upon the Lord, that cannot be done by osmosis. That cannot be done by me being a nice neighbor. That cannot be done by being friendly and generous. That must be explained. There's a saying, an idea that has been going around for years that said, preach the gospel and whenever necessary, use words. That is an absolutely ridiculous notion. That's like saying, hey, can I have your telephone number and if necessary, use numbers. Like it is impossible. Our hearts are resistant to the truth that is in this book. It needs to be explained to us. Preachers are necessary. Preachers are required. Preachers must be sent. It's one thing we're passionate about and it's one reason we partner with North Valley so much is, is the leadership here and the leadership at Isaac Gate is passionate about sending preachers. Why? So that people may call upon the Lord. So your application today is have you called upon the Lord? Have you acknowledged and recognized your righteousness problem? Have you listened and sat under preaching that identifies this for you? And if you have, praise God for that. Are you equipping and sending and helping to send more preachers so that more may call on the name of the Lord to the glory of God? Have you called upon the Lord? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the explicit, clear definition. Thank you for not leaving us hanging, for wondering what it is to have salvation. Help us to see ourselves rightly. Help us to see you rightly. Help us to see our problem and our condition rightly. Help us to understand it. Help us to call upon you and and lead us into conversations and situations that the people we love and care about, we can lead them into it. We can explain it to them and not be vague and, and confused. But we can plead with the people we love and care about to call upon you because in you and in you alone there is salvation. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.